Hello friends and welcome to what I was planning to be the last episode in the series but which is not the last episode in the series after all. In keeping with the time in which plans are constantly being upended and in which everything normal has been thrown into question, my original plan is now officially not my original plan. So welcome to the fifth reflection on this time of pandemic in this series of a currently indeterminate length. I'm still going to be talking about the pandemic and especially uh, the idea of reframing. But I want to start with a story unrelated to the pandemic. The story is famous, but it's worth revisiting as a kind of parable. Some years ago, the violinist Joshua Bell played a sold-out show in Boston, where the average price of a ticket was around $100. Four days after that performance, he played some of the same pieces he'd performed in that massive theatre in a subway. In the first case, predictably, the audience had its attention fixed on Bell. They applauded and cheered. But in the second scenario, the same performer with the same insanely expensive violin playing the same material, at least some of the same material, barely turned anyone's head. A little kid was one of the few that really stopped to pay attention and only occasionally someone would drop a dollar bill into Bell's violin case. While much was the same, the same performer, same violin, same pieces, the context had changed and because the context had changed, the meaning of all the elements changed too. You could look at this through the lens of rhetoric, for instance, to figure out the details of how things changed, how the pathos, ethos, and logos of the musical communication altered. But the shortcut explanation would be this. The essence of any picture is the frame, as G.K. Chesterton points out in his book Orthodoxy. How a thing is framed plays a vital role in determining what sense can be made of it. To find the meaning of anything, we can't just be looking at the picture. We have to understand the frame. In the midst of chaos, all of us will gravitate towards trying to anchor ourselves, trying to find some semblance of order in the midst of it all. And so we are likely to find ourselves reframing things, which is to say, trying to situate one thing we are experiencing in terms of another. But this does not quickly establish a new normal. The trouble is, any act of reframing changes what is being reframed. As with Joshua Bell's performance, when you change the frame, the picture changes too. It's going to take time to arrive at a comfortable sense of what the old thing, the once familiar thing, has been transformed into. Which means reframing is not a fixed thing in the end, it is more like a process. All meaning making relies heavily on this act of seeing one thing in terms of another. It's a bit like an act of transposition, whereby, so to speak, a melody that is difficult to hum or that has notes inaudible to the ear is transposed into a key that is easier to hum and more easily heard too. Of course, this act of transposition or reframing aims for resonance more than accuracy. An exact equivalence is precisely not the aim. Said more strongly, direct equivalence is quite literally not the aim, otherwise it would not be an act of transposition. And of course, this has benefits as well as problems. 
Reframing is what those of us who are people of faith do all the time in terms of our sacred texts and sacred history, where we try to situate our lives in terms of the big story of scripture and tradition, at least in terms of the story as we understand or perhaps even misunderstand it. And simultaneously, we try to situate the text itself within a context we understand. This double movement, this act of matching ourselves to any given context and matching any given context to ourselves, is wildly complex. And it is naive to assume that any text speaks plainly enough for us to understand it precisely as it was meant to be understood. And this means that to interpret anything implies that we will also necessarily misinterpret it. Because as much as we read things, they read us too. There is always something slightly unbridgeable in the gap between who we are and what we encounter. So again, we look for resonance, not accuracy. Perception then is less about finding some sort of magical or mathematical equivalence between the pictures in our head and the world beyond it, but is about a dynamic dialogue with the real. But now, think of where we are right now. The world is undergoing a shake-up of rather epic proportions, one with so many different kinds of implications, existential implications, philosophical implications, theological implications, health implications, occupational implications, economic implications, and so on. And this throws that dynamic dialogue between us and the real into disarray. The context is changed, and... We are changing too, in the context. It's quite easy to imagine that our interpretive frameworks are undergoing substantial revision. And as I've seen the general oblivion to how interpretation itself works as a standard part of the human experience can cause some damage. During this time and beyond it, I think it's essential to become aware of what we are doing and to ask whether it is helping us or harming us, especially in terms of our understanding. And we need to ask questions again about the nature of human flourishing, something I'm going to return to in later episodes. But we also need to begin to understand what things might hinder us from even recognizing what we're doing and what would hinder us from understanding the consequences of what we're doing. This is to say we need to understand how our ways of understanding may inhibit our grasp on what we need to make us flourish. All of this is a bit of a mouthful, but I guess I'm trying to get at the idea that wisdom is knowing what to do when we don't fully understand, when we are more than usually aware that our ignorance outweighs our knowledge. Here's an example of where interpretive problems may arise. Recently, I read an article from an Australian news outlet that actively claims that children pose no risk in the spread of the coronavirus, and that by implication, it's probably safe for little kids under 10 to give their grandparents hugs. It's worth holding on for a minute before we get too hopeful. It sounds good in theory because that's all it really is right now, a theory. The article is very brief and very little detail is given of where the data can be found of this. There is a hint that maybe it's too soon to make a call on this, but the article is, on the whole, fairly optimistic. 
I couldn't help but notice that the fundamental claim was rooted in a negative. Currently, no clear evidence exists that kids are vectors of this contagion, just like there is no clear evidence that the Loch Ness Monster isn't real. In other words, scientists can't verify it. We don't really know, in reality, what the article is claiming to know, and rooting any kind of decision-making in, in such ignorance, well, it doesn't sound like wisdom to me. Here's another example of a strange conclusion drawn from this time. There is a group of people, and let's call them anti-venters, along the lines of anti-vaxxers, who claim that when people have died from being on a ventilator, that it was the ventilator itself that was killing the patient, not the dreaded disease inside their bodies. Some people are calling for the banning of the use of ventilators, and especially intubation. This, like anything I guess at this time, could be a massive debate on its own, but I want to point out just one thing here. What is guiding the decision-making of some people is neither logic nor evidence, but a particular mood or state of mind. The frame is not something like the question of what is true, but rather the question of how we should feel about this or that thing. For the record, arguing that this particular life-saving medical equipment is killing people is a bit like arguing that if someone dies in a plane crash, that it was the seatbelt they were wearing that killed them, not the whole falling from the sky thing. Correlation, as they say in the classics, does not equate to causation. Correlation, after all, implies a mental connection that doesn't necessarily have a connection in reality. What has been difficult at this time is that the story is still unfolding. We know the beginning more or less, even if there's much that we don't understand about the beginning, and we know the middle of the story, even if there's a lot that's unclear about that. We are still, in effect, in the middle of the story. But the ending... Well, precisely what happens when all of this is over, when we have to get back to whatever it is that we're going to get back to? Well, we don't know. We don't know the ending yet. Much of what was made clear at the beginning of the pandemic has changed now. So, for example, at first the news was, don't wear a face mask, and then it became, maybe a face mask is a good idea, and then it became, everyone should wear a face mask. It's essential equipment in fighting the spread of the virus. What is obvious at a very basic conceptual level is that the prior meaning-making strategy has been overturned. The pandemic has not reframed the world in anything like a straightforward sense or in anything like a once-off gesture. It is still reframing the world. It is reframing it constantly. And the actual lived experience of this constant reframing is quite destabilizing, as all of us can probably now attest. One way to think about this pandemic is as a hermeneutic event. This is to say that the things that we are looking at are changing the way we are looking at everything. It is not just that we are looking for lenses through which we can interpret and understand what is going on. Of course, we are doing this. We are also looking for lenses even as what we are interpreting is reconfiguring the lenses we are looking through. I think what's important here is to understand that we're not dealing with anything like a clear split between the subjective and the objective. These two things are always intertwined. 
One of the most notable dangers with how people have responded to this pandemic is precisely through adopting so-called neutral facts, statistics and scientific and epidemiological information, for instance, as strictly neutral. Helpful in one way, maybe, but in others a little troubling. This is something I will come back to in the next episode. In the article about how children might not be contagion carriers, the assumption is that science doesn't have evidence, therefore it is assumed we can neutrally say that children aren't vectors for the contagion. But I would say that the adoption of one form of evidence and a single method for obtaining that evidence and allocating anything approximating meaning to it is potentially deadly in this case. But it's a good example of precisely the danger of adopting the wrong frame through which to look at something. If the frame is wrong, what is seen may look like something even when it is nothing, and the obverse applies too. When the frame is wrong, what looks like nothing may in fact be something after all. Conspiracy theories come to mind again. It looks like 5G is somehow miraculously causing the pandemic, it looks like injecting disinfectant will cure the disease. It looks like ventilators might be causing more harm than good. It looks like the disease could be man-made and so on. But mere appearances, especially when such appearances are rooted in dubious correlations or mere mental connections, tell us very little about what is in fact happening. It's important to know that anxiety triggers the pattern-making mechanisms of the mind in a way that generates links between various stimuli, even when such stimuli are in fact unrelated. What such connections reveal is a particular state of mind, not a particular fact about what is going on. This kind of illusory pattern recognition is an essential component of conspiratorial thinking. It's fairly inevitable, though, when there is no obvious means by which we might access and interpret any given data. And yet the idea that conspiracy theorists are the only ones guilty of arriving at bogus conclusions at this time would be wrong. Part of my point here is that all of us will be prone to illusory pattern making. It is possible to do this even if you're taking concrete data seriously. If I look, for example, at the way that the coronavirus has spread in South Africa and Italy, countries of approximately the same population size, Chances might be that I will be stunned at how much better currently South Africa has been faring. I might be tempted to say that, see, South Africa has been handling this whole thing so much better than Italy has. But these two countries are vastly different in terms of population density and the average age of the population and the number of tourists that visit the country, among many other things. In fact, when you pay attention, the raw data says too little, not because it is wrong, but because it is not properly contextualized. So here we have just a few notable but by no means isolated and by no means totally explanatory factors out of many possible factors that will dramatically affect the outcome and certainly what meaning can be made of the events. Even so-called neutral data often involve hidden biases. In a certain sense, even totally factually correct statistical data can lie. This is something I need to spend some time on, the issue of figuring out a means by which we might access and interpret any given data at this time. 
This is really my main aim here, to offer a perspective on dealing with the sheer onslaught of reframing that is going on right now. But for starters, I just want to say this. What is most strained in this time of incredible upheaval like this is our capacity for handling ambiguity. Certain people, owing to their personalities, perhaps are more prone to struggling with this, but the general idea is that when ambiguity presents itself, when questions seem to multiply and overwhelm our access to answers, what starts to happen, typically at least, is that people grasp at anything that looks like an answer. And they will tend to do this in terms of the bias or default that is most readily available to them. If you're in education and you're used to teaching in a classroom, for example, you are likely to shift to online education in a way that seeks to replicate the standard classroom situation. The analogy between the real and the virtual, however, would be overstated in this kind of strategy. The default or bias may stop a person from recognizing what is really going on and finding better, albeit different, ways of handling the situation. In the process, expectations get set up wrong. In fact, expectation management has almost certainly been one of the most important issues that we're dealing with in one way or another. If you are now not working, forced out of a job as so many of my friends have been, then your expectations will need to adjust. But how do we adjust our expectations? I don't want to go on much longer, but my recommendation is going to be a fairly simple one involving two basic ideas. And of course, this is not going to cover nearly enough, but hopefully it will be of some help to you. The first is we need to make every effort to become aware of our own biases, how our defaults in our thoughts and actions and words are going to shape how we engage with the world. There are going to be some variations depending on who you are, but the core problem as I see it is often that our defaults, maybe you could call this our programming, easily generate obscurities where there should be clarity. This can be located in specific mood, basically how you feel about things at any given moment, but it can also be discerned in all aspects of our lives. What I'm concerned with here is whether we might not unconsciously police our capacity to arrive at the truth and to arrive at genuine understanding by defaulting too much. What helps in becoming aware of our biases is to be careful when any given piece of information arrives at your doorstep and you simply accept it without resistance. This is a fairly good sign that bias is at work. The trouble with this is that it's easy to overlook precisely because reflective consciousness is not present when this happens. There is no friction. If nothing in you resists the thing or asks questions or wants to find out more, chances are good that your defaults are getting too much of a say. Of course, you will be right sometimes to do this. I do not every morning question the reality of my coffee or the demands of my job or the gift of my family. Much of our flourishing requires us to be somewhat asleep to the finicky details of life. We would not be able to handle the conceptual overload of becoming hyper-aware of everything. But when new information comes along and we simply assume that we know what it means, that's when we need to be paying very close attention. One way to check our biases is to try and track the metaphors we use, especially when we're talking about the pandemic. I've mentioned the war metaphor 
in a previous episode. The more I've thought about this war metaphor, the more I think it is a bad metaphor. A good metaphor should disclose and reveal something otherwise unseen, but this discloses nothing, and it creates confusion. In other words, the metaphor frames things poorly. Other metaphors come along too. The pandemic has been referred to as a storm, a disaster, a catastrophe, and so on. These can be very useful metaphors, useful for framing things. But even in metaphors like this, we may betray something, namely how much agency we are giving to ourselves and to others. If this is a storm, then we can do something about it. We can take certain kinds of action to weather the storm. If this is a disaster or a catastrophe, at least in any sort of absolute sense, well then we are merely victims with no power, caught in a state of frantic coping. I think it's fair to say that in some sense, yes, this is a disaster and a catastrophe. But I think it's very important to look for the edges of the metaphor, because maybe it is not helpful to think in absolutely fixed terms around notions like disaster and catastrophe. And in fact, I would say probably the most powerful and useful metaphors are the ones that allow something of a tension of ideas. I happen to like the storm metaphor, and I've used it often in everyday speech, since I think it says something is definitely happening to us. But it also suggests that we can figure out what our role in it is, even if it is just staying at home as much as possible, making sure that we're doing what we can to weather the storm. But what does the metaphor say about how we can reach out to help others? I've felt like my home is like Noah's Ark, obviously another metaphor I like. But the danger of that metaphor is the whole Noah-esque frame of one family versus the world. So in my mind, the metaphor has to be expanded. We're all trying to build a kind of relational societal arc as we wait for the flood to subside. One reason I like the Noah's story metaphor is that it does suggest that this storm will pass, the flood will subside. Another helpful set of metaphors would be around facing challenges and journeying together. In one article I read on the subject of, of framing and metaphor, the advice around noticing our metaphors and crafting messages was summed up like this. Craft messages that evoke care, agency, the common good, solidarity, and interdependence, not messages that evoke fear, division, passivity, fatalism, and individualism. I do have a word of caution about the way this is phrased as a strong injunction. The idea here is almost a little too optimistic. Sometimes, I would say, independence, individualism is a good thing, as is a good dose of fear. If a tiger is charging at you, fear is a fantastically practical thing. Sometimes we need to come to terms with our own helplessness, especially when we are actually helpless. Fatalism is always stupid, yes, but on the other suggestions, I think it's important to be honest. And... Being honest means being aware. In St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the 10th chapter, he has this beautiful idea. He says, We take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. In other words, we place thoughts within the frame of what is most ultimate, the ultimate good that is Christ, who is the bridge between God and, and man. Another way of saying this is, 
seek to place individual experienced realities under the authority of what is ultimately real. This means that there is a space for many of our metaphors, even the negative ones. But the final word on all things is Christ. Then the second thing I'm going to recommend to try and help us to think about reframing is simply this. Look at the negative space. An idea from the Tao Te Ching, which I really like, is that nothing is what it is alone, i.e. nothing is what it is aside from its context. So I'm going to quote from the Tao Te Ching. Long and short exist by comparison. High and low are decided by a slope. Front and back depend on placement. What the conspiratorial mind, whether wacky, unscientific or literal scientific, will do is not look at the negative space. It will accept the thing it is looking at without considering what is around it. What should be obvious to all of us right now is that every frame presents a values system. Epidemiology, for instance, is concerned with slowing the spread of the virus. It is in the nature of epidemiology to do this. It will not look at economic fallout or the possibility that its own strategies may have implications for other dimensions of physical and mental health. Most of us are not epidemiologists. Well, I'm assuming this based on a very small sample size, since I have never met an epidemiologist in person. And while we would do well to think of flattening the curve, so to speak, we also have to look at how to cope as we figure out our way forward. One thing is for sure, given the space we're in, some serious patience is required. It takes time to really consider what we're looking at and the negative space around it. We have to constantly ask ourselves if our frame is sufficient. And most of the time, in certainly in recent weeks and months, we have become aware that our frames are in some sense provisional. Not everything is provisional though. We do have a strong sense of what remains true even beyond and outside the constantly changing landscape. And so to close off, keeping with this idea of being patient as we, as we learn how to constantly reframe the situation, I thought it would be helpful for me to share a parable with you, this time not about a violinist. It's one I've shared on this podcast before, but which I think has some good wisdom for us today, given that we do not know yet how the story will end. So here is that parable. There lived an old farmer who had worked in his field for many, many years. One day, his horse bolted away. His neighbors dropped in to commiserate with him. What awful luck, they tut-tutted sympathetically, to which the farmer only replied, We'll see. The next morning, to everyone's surprise, the horse returned, bringing with it three other wild horses. How amazing is that? they exclaimed in excitement. The old man replied, We'll see. A day later, the farmer's son tried to mount one of the wild horses. He was thrown onto the ground and broke his leg. Once more, the neighbors came by to express their sympathies for this stroke of bad luck. We'll see, said the farmer politely. The next day, the village had some visitors, military officers, who had come with the purpose of drafting young men into the army. They passed over the farmer's son thanks to his broken leg. The neighbors patted the farmer on his back. How lucky he was not to have his son 
join the army. We'll see, was all the farmer said.